As a child, I was extremely artistic. I did visual art, clay modeling. I played the tabla, the drums, even DJed quite a bit. I sang, I danced, I did photography, filmmaking, and so many more things. But unfortunately, I lost touch with all of these artistic endeavors as I entered high school because I didn't find spaces and time to be able to pursue these. Now, this is true for most of our modern day spaces, at least in the context of traditional education or work. You know, they do not seem to be designed to create a culture for artistic expression and creativity. And a lot of parents, including my own business-oriented dad, often discouraged me from pursuing a career in the arts because an artistic career won't pay enough and that it's only good as a hobby. You know, don't take it too seriously. Yet, catchphrases like the need for innovation and collaboration are thrown around all the time in the same business context by the same people. So how do we reconcile this tension? How do we bridge the gap between music and artistic endeavors and business and work? In the book Two Beats Ahead, Michael Hendricks and Panos Pane show us what musical and artistic minds have to teach us about innovation and creativity and how we can transfer over knowledge from the domain of music to the world of entrepreneurial innovation and business. In doing so, they revivify the value of art and show how an artistic and creative mind can become successful. In this experience, we had the opportunity to speak to Michael Hendricks, who is one of the co-authors of the book and also an American graphic designer and entrepreneur. He is the partner and global design director of IDEO, a leading design consulting firm where he practices brand strategy, creative direction, and graphic design. Michael also teaches entrepreneurship at the Berklee College of Music in Boston, where he is also a co-founder for the Open Music Initiative, a program of the Berkeley Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship. In this experimental podcast, we discuss how Michael got started as an artist and honestly how anyone can find artistic expression and get started. How art can actually make us better listeners and communicators and collaborators through getting playful. We also discuss leadership and business lessons from brand, from bands like the Beatles and how we can create more spaces for creativity in the world of business. I hope you can get playful and enjoy this podcast as much as we did. Are you willing to to participate in this sort of experimental podcast? Yeah, I'm really curious. We'll just give it a go and see what happens. Fantastic. Well, so in the book, you described Desmond Child's starting point to be the title of songs. Bjork's was engaging with nature. We're wondering what was your starting point as an artist, right? Vaguely, broadly. And I'd invite you to, you know, take a moment to imagine a space where you felt or you stumbled upon this or you became an artist or you where you most felt like an artist back in the day so that we can get into that space and then engage in some listening and what it means to listen it's an interesting question to ask um how you start as an artist <laughs> no one's ever asked me that um and i 
I don't know if I could point to a starting point either, but I can tell you about a, the first time in my life when I started writing songs and lyrics. And mm-hmm. um, so I'll take you back to my 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 childhood bedroom. Um, I grew up in a farmhouse in Tennessee. I had, um, you know, so you can imagine a rural, a rural setting, uh, a tree, a house on a, a side of a hill surrounded by a few other houses and then cow pastures and woods uh, behind. Um, my room was on the second floor of the house. Um, you know, well, it had four windows. Uh, the room was painted light blue. I don't know why my mom made, got us matching carpet too. So it was like dark blue carpet. Um, and in that room, you know, I had uh, my bunk bed, which I had arranged many times in many different ways in that room. Uh, I had a desk and on that desk, I had a, um, what I called a boom box. I don't know what they're called today. I don't know if they even exist today, but my books, my boom box is a Sony boom box. It was, yellow and black. And um, I used to listen to music off that thing probably constantly, if I, as long as it's in the house. I was always playing tapes. So, you know, when I got in high school, I, I started to think about what was normal or what was not normal. You know, I think a lot of us, we're trying, we're trying to calculate our, where we sit in the world around that age, you know, when you're say 15, 16 years old. And I definitely identified with what was not normal, not what, not what was normal. So that introduced me to punk rock, you know, the counterculture of the time, you know, and um, I think back to the artistic question, I think a lot of us start uh, learning how to be creative uh, with determination by mimicking other artists, other people we admire. Might do that through how we write, you know. know, Shash, you said you enjoyed poetry. So um, certainly you've had moments where you've written a poem like another poet, you know. Um, And that's what it was for me in the beginning. I, I really, you know, my my musical skills weren't great, neither were my writing skills. So I went to bands that I felt I could relate to. And, you know, a classic one would be the Ramones. Um, you know, they they wrote what they knew about, which was, you know, kind of the absurdity of comic books, really. <laughs> Listen to their lyrics. Uh, you know, so for me, I started out writing absurd things too. And, uh, you know, I recruited my cousin and my neighbor and we would write songs together and perform songs together in the bedroom, in this, in this farmhouse bedroom playing punk rock. And uh, from that, though, you know, I learned, I learned, I learned song structure. I learned rhyming schemes. I got a little braver and moved into other styles of music. So, you know, I, I was, I uh, discovered R.E.M. at the time, you know, another kind of counterculture. Um, and very different than, than the Ramones or the Clash, you know, R.E.M.'s, 
who knows what Michael Stipe was singing about and um, could understand half the lyrics, which is ironic given that punk is usually <laughs> the music you can't understand. But I uh, also learned how to play guitar in a new way because of Peter Buck. You know, and that gave me some new skills. So that, that practice of copying somebody, of mimicking somebody to learn was super important to me in my development. Uh, and then, um, you know, I think, it, I think uh, at some point it turns from copying to maybe inspiration. So, you know, you might copy an artist or a, a poet or a writer for years, I think, as you're, as you're starting out trying to get a hang of what you are, who you are. You, you don't necessarily have a voice, an artistic voice yet. You're just, you have passion, you have energy, you have commitment. And then slowly that turns into you starting to recognize some of the unique things about yourself what you can contribute artistically to the world and you start looking less to others to teach you and more to inspire you um and i'm not sure when that happened for me probably probably honestly 10 years afterwards when i really started to get a hang of i was trying to do something my on my own terms um through my own voice so it's a long, it's a long rambling response to your question, but it's a super interesting one for me. So I had to think about it out loud. <laughs> and that's why we wanted to create this space to think out loud, to speak out and be an artist out loud. And yeah, thank you for inviting us and taking us to your room that have blue, this blue vibe and um, this boom box with punk rock going on in the back. And uh, you trying out new things, right? You experimenting and mimicking, which I find very, very interesting, which you said mimicking or copying. And um, I'm very keen to now speak a little bit more about what this mimicry means, because I think what mimicry requires is to deeply listen and absorb everything that's coming our way. So I'm wondering what does listening truly mean and how does that contribute towards finding inspiration and that passion and that energy that comes out of us as, as a piece of art. Well, listening is uh, probably characterized in many ways. I, one is just a kind of openness, right? It, it's this um, moment in which you decide to give your attention to something. And in giving your attention, you're bringing curiosity to a situation that you hadn't given curiosity before. It also is a, uh, a kind of observation, a way to understand your context, your, your surroundings, or to understand other people. You could, you could um, quickly find your way to empathy through listening or observation. And then another way I think about it is it's actually um, it's count it's counter to the way your mind wants to behave. <laughs> so, you know, we it, humans do a lot of things. Our minds do a lot of things to reduce our cognitive load. So we 
tune things out, as we say, or we don't notice them because we register uh, generalities or stereotypes to reduce the cognitive load to allow us to focus on whatever it is we're focusing on. So, you know, you may not notice that the, the bird outside your window is there. <laughs> you, may have, you may be tuning it out so well, you may not hear it singing. If you do hear it singing, you may not register that, you know, it's a bluebird. You might just think bird and move on, right? But if you go to that next step, so first you have to notice, then you have to go, okay, then what song am I hearing so I can identify that bird? And then do I recognize that bird as the one I've seen in my yard before? You know, the, it, it's a cascade of questions, but it's very easy not to have any of those questions. And we do this all the time. Um, we do it, uh, uh, I, I think just to, like I said, to reduce cognitive load. So you have, to, you have to choose to listen. You have to choose to notice to choose to be open, to be curious. And that's in the book, that's one of the things that we're trying to show um, through different lenses, different artists. You know, you mentioned Bjork earlier when we were talking. You know, Bjork is definitely someone who finds the natural environment inspiring to her, the man-made environments inspiring to her, but also science. You know, she pays attention to um, you know, scientific fundamentals and actually sings about them, which I think, which I think is fascinating. Um, she obviously pays, you know, she's like many artists, pays attention to his, the relationships she has and, and, and shares experiential stories and internal dialogues about, about those relationships. Um, and then you have someone like Desmond Child in the book who, his kind of listening is more um, trying to tap into, I think, some of the most general things about human nature and love that people know they know, but they don't know how to talk about. You know, it's, it's usually feelings, these feelings that we have about our relationships. And so he'll start with a, a, a clever phrase, usually the, the title of the song, and then unpack that. You know, and um, in the book we have, we write about You Give Love a Bad Name, um, which is a Bon Jovi song. And it's such a, it's such a good title. Um, but you know what he's talking about from that title, right? It's a, it immediately gets to a human story of, you know, betrayal, uh, you know, or whatever, uh, bad relationship memory you have <laughs> he keys into it and he's really smart about that so he's able to tap into these common experiences that we have and give a clever twist of of how we talk about them uh, yeah i just wanted both, to jump in michael doing that. yeah i just wanted yeah. to jump in really quick michael because i uh, really that point really resonates with me when you were talking about you know the title of that song you give love a bad name it's I, that we often hear language is obviously pervasive. There's a lot of things that are said all the time, but not a lot that is really uh, not a lot that actually strikes a chord with us. There's not a lot of song titles um, that you would say, Oh yeah, I really understand what this is saying. And yet when you hear that song title, you give a lot love a bad name. It, it, like you said, it really, it's so visceral. And that really makes me wonder 
um, in terms of uh, listening is that if you're truly listening, you can really engage with people in such a specific and uh, such a specific and intentional way like no other because there may be a lot of songs and a lot of titles and a lot of lyrics, or even just if you're in a business context, for example, people are saying a lot of things without saying a lot of things, but there's sometimes those moments where people hit the nail on the head and they're so precise with what they say and it really connects with you. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to, yeah, just basically add that comment because it seems like. So something I'd also like to add on to this is, the the mental shortcuts you spoke about how, how our minds have habits and mental shortcuts to reduce cognitive load but it seems like uh, when we're truly listening by putting our attention uh, with curiosity as you said and are very intentional as Xavier just mentioned which I find very interesting because I think when we are intentional I see that as intention and it's like there are these there are these two points and then there's a space between the two points right the space in between as you alluded to in the chapter about listening and i find it very interesting the things that happen when we embody that space in between two things right and this can get quite uh philosophical almost metaphysical with liminal spaces and what that does to us but um on a more practical level i think you know, you describe listening to those birds, listening to things that we don't often listen to, or in the context of human beings, you know, reading between the lines and empathizing truly with the human being, what that person is feeling and needing in that moment. And, um, you know, the songs that you just described, um, I think the point about how certain songs, certain language, when is crafted from a place of listening, can actually articulate feelings that we don't know how to speak about or often that's conditioned in these boxes and uh, sort of derailed from our day-to-day life. But it seems like listening enables a lot of, a lot of emotional synchrony. And uh, there was this concept you brought about in the book, which I was extremely fascinated by and would be curious to know your thoughts on. You said there is the search for emotional coordinates. And every time I listen to music that touches my heart, it feels like that emotional coordinates has been met. There's a synchrony that happens. And I'm wondering what that emotional coordinate coordinates mean to you. And how do you, how do you find these emotional coordinates? How do you connect these emotional coordinates when there lies the space in between that is often uncomfortable? You know, it's, it's interesting because I, I think so many people believe in communication as the power to persuade others versus um, what I think it usually is, is the power to seduce others. (laughs) And what I mean by that is it's that emotional coordinates you're talking about. I mean, if we can, we can continue to tell the world that climate change is happening and that it's going to end life as we know it, as we have been telling people for 30 years, um, and it doesn't change behavior. It doesn't change industry, right? And so, uh, you know, giving people facts, giving people information um, often is not the solution to good communication and understanding and connection with others. There's something else. And that's, that's where the emotional connection comes in. Now, this is totally abused by some people 
you know, I'll, I'll say a former president of the United States totally abuses this and he, and, and he has a skill for doing it. He can tap into negative emotion of others and also cause them to act against fact, right? So it's, um, I'll only bring that up because these things are tricky. Like I, 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 I think um, many of the mindset skills in the book can be, can be used for good or for bad. Yeah, if you, if you know how to, um, how to tap to people's emotions. So I, I wanna encourage you and listeners to use it for good for one thing. <laughs> that's my preference. Um, and, the, and to get to emotion, that's where empathy, empathy um, is a good way to get there. I think there's, you know, obviously negative ways to get there, but, but why I say empathy is if you, if you can begin to understand the experience of other people, then you might find some shared ground. You might not, doesn't matter, but you can at least begin to understand emotionally where they're coming from, what their concerns are, what their challenges are. And from there you can start to connect, you know, so I think artists do this really well. Uh, very few are trying to persuade us of anything. You know, they're definitely political artists. Um, but most artists are just trying to help us connect with each other about our human condition. Mm, definitely. And for me, when, when listening to that, when you were saying about the emotional coordinates, Michael, as well as what you were saying, Shash, something that also resonated with me or something that came to mind rather um is when we are able if we're able to communicate effectively it also requires us to listen to those spaces in between like you mentioned in the book michael about in various examples that the spaces in between or like the silence rather in between the notes is crucial to understanding what is being untapped or what is not being communicated and you can apply this in all circumstances whether whether it applies to business like in the examples you brought about in the book or whether that applies to psychotherapy or whether that applies to philosophy there's a silence between the notes in every sector and in every industry at least what when i read the book that's what came to mind for me and i'm wondering for both of you how has tapping into silence aided you in being a better communicator I, I've had to learn how to um, hear what people are not saying. You know, I I used to be a very much a, a face value person. Um, you know, if someone said something, I would just take it for what it was and and move on. And and uh, I realized at some point there was a lot of information not being communicated, or something was said that it it left another aspect of the work completely uncommented upon. And um, that that was um, uh, quite a challenge for me, actually, because it's, it's hard to do that in a way that isn't encouraging you to make assumptions, you know? Um, I mean, you want to be able to truly try to hear what's unspoken, not assume that you know what was being said. <laughs> and I don't really know how to talk about how to describe that skill of learning that. You know, it's a sensitivity. It's like, I think it is very contextual. But the trick is to, um, I think often in 
I, in business situations, what I've learned is just ask better questions and more questions and more questions and more questions. Um, and you can often get to what was unsaid through that process. And you don't have to assume anything. You can just uh, just use curiosity as your discovery tool. So I actually resonate a lot with that, which is I've been trying to listen from the past one or two years to the spaces in between in the context of human relationships and things that are not being said. Right. And uh, for me, the context was more uh, conflict, right? When people come together and they get into conflict, why that happens? And I, you know, got into this philosophy called NVC or nonviolent communication, which really talks about empathizing with the whole body, right? And becoming that person. And it actually gives a very interesting take on the issue that you're describing, which is that we must assume, but assumptions can be our double-edged sword, right? They can lead us to make false narratives in our head, which actually ruin the relationship or that interaction even more. So the solution that I came across was instead of assuming, uh, guessing, or sorry, uh, asking questions, but also just guessing and reflecting as, as in like, I'm hearing you say this, is, is that what you're saying? Or I'm, I'm are you feeling this way, right? Like if I can embody that other person, right? Almost like a trance-like state where they become I, I become them, then I can start feeling what they're feeling. And I think human beings have the capacity to do that, right? We can, uh, I think you use this very interesting metaphor that we're like machines that produce energy. So if we can vibrate at the frequency of the other machine producing the other energy and find that resonance between us, then I can feel what that other person is feeling and then guess and then ask them rather than say, uh, you're feeling this. So instead of imposing, I found it interesting to, to guess and to reflect because uh, at least for me, I feel heard when someone connects with what I'm feeling and what I'm needing. And that has been a very interesting uh, sort of dynamic that that I found when I was able to listen to spaces in between. Yeah. So just to just to jump on that, because it gave me a couple of ideas. So that relates to, I think, a lot into music in some way and specifically playing within a band. And at the end of chapter one, Michael, you described uh, uh, you described the event I think I forget where it was, but it was a group of tech CEOs coming together that and Panos then invited a couple audience members in and um, everyone started playing music and everyone just started jamming together as if they were, you know, in a band forever. And there was that, that moment of spontaneity and, um, and uh, free flow and everyone was coming on the set. It was on the same wavelength. It seemed, even though they had not known each other. And I think it's very interesting to, to link, uh, the silence within the gaps to that and to talk about basically getting on the same wavelength with people and making sure that you are not only communicating like verbally, but also communicating uh, with, I guess, your, I, I don't know, this sounds like really like 60s new agey, but with your vibe, like the, the, with the energy that the person's giving off. Um, I guess there's not really any question to this, but I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on that, Michael and Shash. Yeah, um, th yeah, that was at a Silicon Valley bank event, and we had a number of the CEOs from their, one of their portfolios together, and it was it was a, a really wonderful evening to see you know a, a CEO start to sing her heart out, you know, and have have um, these students jump in and play with her, and uh, kind of lift her up to the next level in her own performance. It was amazing. I mean, so much of that comes from trust and belief in one another. 
you know, um, and I, I think one thing when you when you do come together to play music with people, um, and I think this is true actually when you come to do multidisciplinary projects as well, you need you need trust to be in the room, um, and I often believe that comes from uh, belief in one another, belief in what the other people in the room can uh, contribute to what you're going to do. So, uh, you know, good good communities, good cultures. Uh, have ways of helping people uh, communicate that you know um, good businesses do this so you, you when you walk into a room you can you know what everybody is uh, qualified to do you know what they're passionate to do and just knowing that starts to build trust if you if we put enough ideas in the space people can start sharing and contributing to the idea um, you know what? What I've realized a lot of a lot of business environments aren't that way. They're actually the opposite. Mm -hmm. They're they're very filled with distrust, and um, the even the incentive structures you know in place in those businesses aren't uh, put in place to help you collaborate with one another. They're actually put in place to help you as an individual succeed at the cost of another individual. You know, um, and the result is that as you can make more money than that person, right? You get more credit. You get the promotion. So those aren't trustful environments, you know, and often when you see collaborative projects put into those kind of environments, they really struggle because people are withholding information from each other. Um, they might be making, you know, miniature, you know, dividing lines within even small teams, you know, and choosing who they're going to talk to, who not, and that sort of thing. But um, if you can begin with that expectation and belief and trust in one another, then you can overcome all of those other things. So a lot of work has to be done in setting up projects to do that, you know, to create those environments where people feel respected, people feel like they, they know what they're supposed to contribute, they're confident in their own skills. Um, and uh, if you can do that, then you have um, a better chance of doing something creative together. Mm. Do you wanna go ahead, Shash? Yes, I, I'm bubbling with so many things. So it seems like we've moved from listening to now actually connecting with people and collaborating as you just described, Michael. So uh, I could sort of picture like, you know, we've moved from your house in Tennessee to, to this conference. Uh, I think you said it was like a Silicon Valley tech conference, but again, maybe I misheard. But um, I'd invite you to describe it a little bit more because it is that business context. And I'm very fascinated by what could happen if we infused art and play in contexts that are more objective and business-like and you know as you said trust is in there it's a very transactional relationship and there's competition right there's this notion of me versus them this is there's this notion of zero-sum game it's either i win or you win we can't win-win right and to transform that is something me and Xavier speak a lot about on this podcast right to create a utopia where we can all win and we can all do things that are more conducive to the human condition through infusing art into these different business contexts. So I'm wondering if you could describe uh, that space, what it felt like, given that, uh, I mean, what it felt like before people started to sing and uh, experiment and collaborate, and then what happened? What was that, sh that, that shift that brought about people to sing out of their hearts and, and merge to make, as you described?
Well, the room was set up in a in a way that um, you know mo most presentations are, in which you know it's actually a large room that serves both a dining area and a kind of um, presentation area. So, kind of a multi space, multi use a multi use building. And so, in that room, we had half the room we had dining tables set up, and then on the other half, we had taking chairs and you know, I imagine it was about 20 or so in two half circles. So all the CEOs could sit there and they're looking forward at, at I think it was Pano standing, you know, in front of a, you know, a, a projector on the wall. I'm sitting there next to Panos. Um, and in the middle, we have um, a drum kit and uh, an upright bass on the side on the floor. And I can't remember a, a brass instrument. I don't remember which which horn it was, but uh, so, you know, it's, we started out that evening going through a talk that actually was a lot of the early, early ideas for our book that we hadn't um, written at that time. And uh, we'd asked the, we'd asked those CEOs, who would you rather hire a musician or an athlete just to get some context in the room. And the reason we asked that question is because people have so many stereotypes about, you know, musicians being, you know, un unreliable, hedonistic, um, you know, not not very smart about things outside of music, <laughs> you know, and, and then athletes, you know, people see them as disciplined, hardworking, uh, great team players. Um, but as we sort of unpack to them, like the circumstances, the context that we're working in, uh, such as, you know, we're we are now in a situation where the dynamics of of our business environment are changing regularly culture is in a transition a massive transition of some kind that we don't we don't actually know how it's going to play out um technology is rapidly advancing and you know what we adopt one year needs to be set aside to adopt something new the, the coming year so when you start thinking about your choice between a, an athlete or musician, an athlete who is used to following directions from a coach, uh, sticking to a certain role, uh, playing a game whose rules never change, doesn't actually sound as good as a musician who is, who is listening, improvisational, ready to adapt, um, ready to invite more in. Um, and, and with that basis, we, we started to open up the conversation with the CEOs, asking them to tell us their own stories. You know, it turned out a lot of them had a musical background um, and they hadn't really thought about how that musical background had contributed to their own success and the way that they actually thought about things. You know, I, I mean, I realize CEOs aren't going into their their boardrooms and uh, picking up a guitar or piano, but, they're, but they are thinking in those ways, like the way we invite people into to collaborate, to, to jam, to brainstorm, um, the willingness to take an idea and, and push it in a new direction, the curiosity to let someone else take the lead and follow them to see where they go. Those are musical mindsets. So when we started talking about that, um, and we could illustrate it by, by pointing back to those instruments in the room, we, we invited uh, some music students to come and play those instruments together. And they had never played together before. Uh, but they were all skilled and they, and they could come together and play some jazz standards. So we could say, you know, here's a jazz standard, you guys play the song. They would have a short discussion about 
the tempo and then they would go in one of them would start and they would they would take off um and that's what that started to move us from kind of a lecture based evening to more of an experiential participatory evening and that's what shifted the conversation in which you know, finally one of the ceos volunteers she said yeah she would she would play along too we had a piano in the room that she was able to walk up to and start to uh play one of her songs on um and when she did that then the the students started to just follow along with her and they had never heard her song either um but they could start to build some scaffolding underneath what she was performing and that just changed the whole evening through that you know we've been, eventually that led to us all having dinner there together um and it made it a much more casual conversational relaxed environment um but you can kind of see that how that transition happened over time when it went from like hey you know we're the experts here's an idea to <laughs> hey let's versus rather than us telling us about the idea let's just all start to experience this idea together um and it felt great something that comes to mind michael is when you're describing those situations and when i think about musicians just collaborating and you know jazz artists just you know never meeting each other and then just suddenly being able to get into sync and play these beautiful pieces of music is that i think a lot of it is engaging with this sort of childlike play where you just immediately open to whatever the outcome is and just sort of get into the, the rhythm of things and see how it goes. And if it doesn't end up going well, well, we can just keep playing and figure it out. And if it does end up going well, well, great. You know, it's a fantastic outcome. And so this relates to a part of the book where Imogen Heap, she was creating her album and I believe something where like there was a file that corrupted or something along the lines and she lost the album. And shortly after she, you know, she was frustrated, obviously, and she started experimenting. She started, and then she came up with her, with the hit song. I think it's her biggest song till that uh, the name escapes me. Hide and seek. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Hide and seek. And, and this comes back to the childlike play about how, you know, despite you know, losing the music or despite it not going the way she planned, it's like, well, I may as well just engage in some experimentation. I may as well just see how it goes. And it ended up going fantastic. And just like a lot of musicians, that's usually the case. I was interested to hear from, from you, Michael, and also you, Shash, what, what does it mean to engage in childlike play for you? And does that resonate with you? Do you think that is necessarily the case? Um, I'd be interested to hear any of your thoughts, whether you agree or disagree. You know, I think there's uh, one of the things that makes childlike play different than a, um, the kind of play adults do is it, it doesn't really um, have a performative aspect to it. You know, there's not a self-consciousness to it. There's just a curiosity and wonder and letting the imagination flow. Um, and so I agree. I, I think a lot in those musical situations. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Like, if I if I show up somewhere and people want to quote jam, I'm like, uh, I don't know. Because usually, like, the desire isn't to really jam. The desire is like for someone someone wants to actually like take the lead and kind of show off their chops, and then they kind of want you to kind of follow along with them and like, and then like, what if you can't? You know, like, you know, but. I think real play doesn't care about that stuff. Real play comes together and just starts to noodle around. And if something interesting 
comes of it, so great. And if something doesn't, it doesn't matter either. Because what you enjoyed was just the moment of actually doing something together, right? Um, it's it that um, object that feeling of having to have an objection, objective, or a or an intention or an ending. I think also is different um, as adults than it is from children. Children don't need to have the narrative arc. I mean, they can be <laughs> very happy just being in the moment and then it's, going on. But it's treated as an end in itself as opposed to an outcome. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I find it very fascinating, this dynamic you laid out, because I thought, wait, why would you say no to jamming? But now I see the dichotomy or the difference you're making where it's childlike play versus adult play, because we're always playing a form of game, but adult play is kind of different. And I find it interesting, like I was imagining what this would look like and um, an interesting sort of metaphor or uh, the almost theory is to think of adult play as in more static and more hierarchical, right? There's this need to be in the place of power and to be on top, right? There's this domination sort of thing that happens, which is what I understand why you are a little bit apprehensive of going into adult jam sessions because they want to show off and get to that place on top. Whereas um, on the other hand, childlike play seems more dynamic where there is no one person on top. There is no one leader that's trying to show off, but it's more fluid. And I find that profound. I mean, it's so true that it happens with children, but recently I came across this um, concept of heterarchies, which is kind of like a hierarchy, except it's fluid. So A can be greater than B and B can be greater than C. In a hierarchy, it would assume that A is greater than C, right? A is always on top. But in a hierarchy, C can also be greater than A. And something magical happens when those, those rigid hierarchical boundaries dissipate and things start to flow more. And it seems like, uh, like playing in a band where there is no ego clash or there is no need to dominate over the other or like get all the spotlight. I think those kind of bands really get into this collective state of consciousness or this group flow that's, you know, they can just come together and self-organize. They don't need one person to like take control of that, that situation. So yeah, I find it fascinating uh, the, the difference between childlike play and how that can lead to more dynamic groups versus adult play, which lead to static groups. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. And I think as well, this was mentioned in the book, if I'm not this mistaken, Michael, you were mentioning how within bands uh, and musicians as well, is that they have a unique position of being leaders, but then also being the followers because it requires students or and not even students, but people that are, that if they have a desire to create a certain sound, a certain music, they can take the lead and lead the band. And then vice versa, if they want to sit back and listen to someone else's a leadership or someone else's take on a music or on a piece, they can let them take uh, go ahead. And so I see that fluidity coming across even in leadership styles within music as well. Yeah, and I would say it's true for multidisciplinary projects. So in my experience at IDEO, that's very much how teams work. You know, you have you have teams made up of people from different backgrounds, different skill sets. Um, you have someone named the project leader, but that doesn't mean they're leading the conversation on a daily basis or even the work for a period of time that can be passed around in the room because you're you're not looking to feed the egos of the individuals in the room you're curious about what you're trying to discover together and you if someone has the energy 
the hunch, the skill set to lead you at that particular time. You just go with it. Um, and that's very much like how a, how a band works. So I'm interested in transferring over this knowledge from music as we've been speaking about to now in the context of business that you just mentioned, right? And how teams at IDEO work. I mean, one of the challenges with the human condition is that we have certain boundaries and certain clashes where our egos come in the way as we've been discussing. And um, that is a barrier towards multidisciplinary collaboration or what I like to think of transdisciplinary collaboration where you know, we go beyond the boundaries that exist even in multidisciplinary. So the challenge being the ego comes in the way and you describe this issue in the context of music with the band Beatles and how they sort of had this ego clash and things didn't work out um, and, and they had to find new ways of doing things. I'm wondering how can that story of the Beatles and egos coming in the way be reconciled, not in, just in the context of music and artists, but also in the context of business, which seems harder to do because there's more at stake and, you know, the culture is quite different, whereas music naturally seems more dynamic and more fluid and more childlike, yet ego could come in the way. So I'm, I'm guessing business would be way more challenging. So I'm wondering, how would you reconcile that tension, the, the ego clashes that come into the way? Well, you know, the, the Beatles had seven really successful years before they didn't. Um, and I, I would probably oversimplify it to say it came down in the end, it fell apart because they lost a shared agenda. You know, so for those seven years beforehand, they had a shared agenda. They were willing to go on experiments together, try new things together. Um, you know, they, they came up with, you know, uh, music videos. They came up with um, incredibly interesting narrative structures for albums. They, they experimented a lot with in the studio and invented new ways of using the tape machines. And that was just them on a daily basis being willing to pursue that shared objective of creating something new in the world. But by the time they got to, when they got to their end, what happened, there's a couple of things that happened. One, you know, they, they weren't alone. They, uh, Brian Epstein is their manager and he, he unexpectedly passed away. Um, and when he, that was actually the beginning of the end for the Beatles. So that's, that's just important to note that I, I believe he was a person in their lives that helped them share an agenda together. Um, it was more about more than them just, you know, cooperating and getting egos to, to work along, um, which I know, I know he sure certainly did. But it was also getting him to agree, like, what do we want to do next? What do we believe is the next place this band should go? Um, when he died, uh, Paul actually tried to step in and take that that role. And uh, John, George, and Ringo didn't want him to. They, they felt like that was some kind of power grab on his part. So that's when the when the rift started to happen but ultimately what really tore it apart was actually some business decisions so when they did they didn't have a shared agenda it turns out they were also making music and not sharing it with each other either right so you know john was working on an album george was working on an album even ringo was working on an album and paul was working on an album so they all had they were all working on their own songs and not bringing them back to the band to play they were keeping them for themselves um, and Paul, uh, to the extreme, he set up a recording studio in his apartment 
I started recording those songs himself too. So what what happened is he actually had a whole album ready to go and he wanted to put it out before the next Beatles record. And the rest of the band was like, no, you can't put that, you can't put out your first solo album, you know, two weeks before we put out our next record. That's gonna hurt our sales. You know, it's gonna hurt the publicity campaign, et cetera. And he was set on doing it. Um, so ultimately he did, he said, he put it out. I, I don't remember what the, how many days before um, Abbey Road, but it was uh, within a couple of weeks, within a week or so. And the conflict over that was so great that they just never got back together and played. Um, so, you know, in, in the business world, this happens all the time. People have different agendas, um, different personal agendas. And I found like fi finding the shared agenda is the main task for for any of those teams is you want to find out what is the common ground that we're all working toward that despite whatever other personal agendas we might have, we're willing to help ladder them up to the bigger goal, bigger purpose. Yeah, I find that very fascinating, this story. Uh, and my attention goes towards two big things. One is the shared agenda, the shared almost reality, uh, the shared project these people had versus then on the other hand, the, the manager who you said when he passed away, they, they broke apart. And I find the first I'd like to touch upon the manager. I find it very interesting because it seems like the manager more than a sort of dominating manager. He was kind of like a facilitator. He was a person who was hardly known or the leader who was hardly known, which alludes to the Taoist way of leadership or the, the servant way of leadership where he wasn't the face of the band. No one really knew about him yet. He would bring them together in ways that, that no one, uh, that, they couldn't themselves, right? So I find it interesting. I mean, I think in business context, when people from different backgrounds are trying to collaborate, what leaders, what bringing those teams together must do is to become facilitators rather than, I'm not a fan of the word managers because it seems very imposing and trying to like, I will tell you what to do. Rather, it's connecting those people, bringing them together and finding the shared agenda, right? Finding unity in the diversity that exists. And I feel like when we can find that unity within the diversity that exists between artists or employees in the context of business, then uh, I think interesting things start to come to, to happen and art, the most fruitful form of art can, can, can come about. So yeah, I find this idea of shared agenda and, and how the facilitator is the person who brings that agenda to the group and disappears thereafter is, is hardly known, quite fascinating. There's a book, there's a chapter in the book about producing that I think touches on some of these ideas as well. Um, and, you know, the great, great producers, they're trying, they're, they are trying to help an artist achieve their next best artistic statement, you know, and in the belief in like over time, you keep progressing a little more and a little more and a little more, you'll get to some excellence at some point. So they're trying to create conditions for success. And those conditions um, could be, one of those conditions could be the shared purpose, for example, you know, help, helping organize a group of musicians around a shared idea, a shared belief, 
a shared um, intention, not necessarily a shared outcome, but just a, a, share, a shared belief in being together and exploring ideas together. And, um, you know, one of the people we actually don't talk about in the book much is Rick Rubin, which I'm, I'm sure you all know who he is. You know, he, he's in a, there's a documentary called Shangri-La, which is about the studio that he uh, ultimately purchased and works out of today. Um, but he says in that documentary, one of his goals, he says, is to be able to have an effect on the artist without ever stepping into the room, without ever even being there. Uh, and in, and part of what he's saying is like the conditions he can create in the studio just by inviting them to the space, providing to them to the tools, providing for them the context can be enough to shape the outcome. I find that extremely fascinating um, because it reminds me of this quote. I think it's by Marshall McLuhan who says that first we create our tools and spaces and thereafter they create us. And I think it's so interesting because in this example, you're saying that the producer created a certain space in a way, designed it for things to automatically start happening, where even he didn't have to be there. He just put tools and designed the space in a way where it enabled those artists to thrive and really play and experiment and listen and go through the entire artistic process. And I think this is so important, even when we transfer to the context of a business, because oftentimes we're in like corporate environments, we're put into a cubicle and people are just working all day like this, whereas the human body is not designed for this. That space is deadening to our souls, right? It doesn't enable us to thrive. It doesn't enable us to connect with others. So uh, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the space at IDEO, because even though I've not seen it, I've heard a lot of fascinating things about how the interesting the building looks and how I'm guessing the way it looks and the way it's designed affects the way people design in that building. So I'm wondering if you could share and maybe describe, take us to the building of IDEO so that we can really embody that and, and see what happens thereafter. Such an interesting question during the lockdown of a pandemic. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, so IDEO, we have, we have eight buildings, we have eight studios around the world. Um, you know, I'll, I'll talk, I can talk about the one in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, because I, I help I, I acquired the building and, and uh, help uh, art direct it and have some, I can tell you about the intention. But, but one thing I will say, you know, most of I has not been back in an office for over 18 months. You know, we, we've been working out of our homes. Um, and we have been coming back to this question too about what creates uh, the conditions for the, for creativity, the best conditions for creativity. What are we missing right now as we've had to work out of our homes? Um, or what have we gained? You know, and, and, and a lot of it depends on the particular roles people have um, or their personalities, you know, introverted, extroverted, things like that. But I do believe that the, the space does has, have value. Um, and even when we're able to return to our offices, we've already committed to returning to a hybrid model of some kind that allows for a lot of flexibility to not always be in the office. So 
I can talk a little bit about IDEO offices and, the, and then maybe a little about what I think the office of the future has to be, just so I, as you answer your question, Shosh. Um, you know, the, the IDEO building in, in, in Cambridge is a, is a standalone building. We have been uh, on the upper floor of a building for almost 10 years in Cambridge. And when we had a chance to move because of our lease, I decided I wanted to have a singular building if I could find one in Cambridge so that it was highly visible to the neighborhood. I wanted it to be a, um, a magnet for inspiration, uh, a hub for, for uh, creativity, drawing people in. Um, and that's different than what we'd normally do because we are a consulting business. We're working with all of our clients. But I, at that time, I started to feel the need, this is probably four years ago, to um, create, the, create the environment for other creators to work alongside us and work with us. So we, we ended up uh, finding a great building. It, it's, it was an old, um, originally an older garage that turned into a community college. And when that community college left, we took it and renovated it. Um, so the first signal that when you see this building um, is actually that there's something creative happening inside. And the way I signaled that is I, I commissioned uh, a street artist named El Tono from France to come and, and do a giant abstract mural around the entirety of the building. Um, it's just geometric forms based off the architectural shapes of the building itself. And, and I, I did that because I wanted to signal to the Cambridge community, it's like, hey, this is different. This is, this is an exciting, vibrant uh, group of people. Um, and I want you to notice that we're here and I want you to come up and ask why we're here. Uh, when you walk into the building, uh, you have to walk by some garage doors on the first floor that open up into collaborative spaces. So um, we've run a number of different kinds of events in that space, hacking, you know, hackathons, uh, something called IDEO Collab, which brings together different companies to work together. We even had Battle of Bands down there, I guess three times now. <laughs> um, that space, which opens street level from the garage doors is very important because it's, it's a welcoming, it's, it's, it is uh, the liminal space, to use your word, Shosh, um, that invites people in and out of, of the building. And it signals that our intention, again, of why we, what IDEA wants to be. You know, the, the second and third floors of the building, those are, you know, large community spaces, large open community spaces with individual project rooms all along the outside walls. So something about our interesting about all of our buildings is we don't have offices. No, no leader has an office. Um, and we've saved the best, the best uh, spaces in our buildings for project teams. So all the project teams are along the windows and then our community spaces are surrounded by that. What that allows is one, it's just it's like a great environment to work in because you've got, you've got the corner office, you know, you've made it. Um, but then you can just fall out from your project spaces into the middle and you're all together sharing your work. And that creates a lot of, um, serendipitous moments when people are just coming together, you know, um, having coffee, talking about what they're working on. So, you know, we haven't been able to take advantage of that in the pandemic because everything's done through Zoom or Slack or email. Um, and the, ser the serendipity has been the hardest part because, uh, not because I don't believe it's possible in the remote world, I, I do believe it's possible. But 
uh, we had created the conditions where it just happened, right? Like the design, the design of the space itself encouraged it to happen. Uh, what we've not done, done now is design this environment that we're in to allow serendipity to happen. And it's, it is quite hard because nothing happens in uh, remote communication without it somehow being decided upon beforehand, right? Because you have to have this calendar invite. You have to make sure you have the right people <laughs> invited to that particular time. You have to recognize that it's boxed in between other similar things. Um, and I don't think we've quite figured it out yet. We've done a few um, large events that are spread out over hours that start mm -hmm. to create some serendipity. But the short, short bursts, we haven't figured that out yet. So I find this so fascinating. I'm having like Hydra moments where you cut off one <laughs> neck and like 10 new necks are coming out because this is something me and Xavier have been thinking a lot about as in me, we both met up in high school and now our relationship here is just through this virtual reality. And it has been very profound in many ways for me. And I enjoy the, the sort of advantage this virtual space brings to me because I can connect with people around the world who I could never connect with in person. But at the same time, you're describing the physical aspect of things, which I'm now doing again, you know, being back in college is quite surreal. And it seems like, I mean, I could see IDEO and like the vision of it in my head. I find it very interesting because what you had done there was you prompted people to play. Right. It, it wasn't even like saying, okay, now play. It was just designing for play. Right? I think we need to be prompted to play more in whatever way we can, whether that's in person or even in this virtual space that we are in. And as you could tell at the beginning of this conversation, that's exactly what we're trying to do. I mean, we're no techno uh, tech geniuses where we could actually redesign Zoom, but in different ways, if we could imagine different spaces, if we could play different games, if we could just act more playful like what if i was to where you came in and my glasses were like that right i think that's a prompt to play and that just gets like okay i, I didn't expect that you just violated my expectation and if we could add more artistic expression within these space that spaces online that seem so like in the box or disenchanting if we could re-enchant these spaces through art I think something very magical could happen that I think that would be the liminal space between two realities, right? Whether that's the, the physical or the virtual, right? The hybrid space is, I think, um, a space that I would love to play in and, and find mm -hmm. out what could happen and innovate in this space. So yeah, it's just yeah. exciting to me. I just wanted to jump in, Shash, because that touches on one question that, I, that has been buzzing in my head since I read the book, which was um, the example of David Icke, uh, David Icke's on um, Rocket 88. And you were talking, Michael, about how um, his band were, you know, going to the studio and then the amplifier broke in some, in some way, the glass tube broke within the amplifier and what, and they decided, you know, let's just play. It doesn't matter. And it produced this very, um, this very different sound when they were playing the song and it's audible in the song as well, which I, which I was playing to Shashwit before, which is, is such a great song. And how I was thinking about this is that uh, an individual broke the way things were done 
And that led to a change in the industry because after that song, you know, in the book, how everyone was trying to break their own amplifiers to recreate that song, which is very, very bizarre, but it's also very amusing as well. And I see this happening not only on a musical level, but also industry level, you know, tools like zoom are physically breaking how things were done in the past. And people are trying to replicate it through different mediums, whether that's Google meet Skype or whatever. And I wanted to ask with this in mind, you know, where you were talking about the, the, the hardships that come with forming creativity online through an online medium and how it's harder versus, you know, going to the office where things are already prompted to help people play. What do you think needs to be broken? What amplifier in a metaphorical sense do you think would need to be broken for things to change in a way that will allow for these serendipitous moments? Sometimes these things are hard to plan for, you know, like the Ike Turner story. I mean, that was an accident and mm. it was an, an accident that was embraced. You know, um, I was just looking here. I was, I was going to try some, um, see if I can do some filters here. There, I got a mustache, you know, or a, um, a beret maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it, looks, know, like, it looks good. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. You know, I'm going to leave it on for a while. Um, we have, there have been examples. I mean, remember um, the story of the news a, a while back about, you know, the liar that appeared before the judge and he couldn't get the filter off of his Snapchat filter off of his camera. And I can't remember what animal he was, but he had to talk to the the judge with the Snapchat filter on. <laughs> um, and uh, those kinds of moments are actually great and instructive. I mean, if I, if I, I'm going to just going to play with, my filters the rest of this uh recording they do change the nature and this is this is so these kinds of things we have tried to play with some of the idea of like okay let's all let's all uh you know decide we're gonna be pirates for the next 10 minutes <laughs> you know and you keep going on with your work but you're doing it as pirates right um and that helps you break out of some of the um boxes that you get put in just because you're in in this in this this particular mode of working so i would encourage that for anybody you know just uh, continue to play with your backgrounds and your filters um don't be embarrassed by that let's see i'm gonna go back i'm to also the, trying to do it and uh, i i can't seem to find it but i think this is such a fantastic idea right you're prompting people to play and take on different characters which is something we wanted to do but we're not sure like you know this is going to be an interview what if we asked us to be like pirates, for example, and act and speak like pirates and, you know, change our voices and really embody a, a pirate. What would that look like? What would that do to the conversation? Um, so I, I think this is a, a really great, great idea. I think COVID in that sense was this sort of breaking for us to, to, you know, experiment and come into this reality. And it seems like now you're breaking those, those, and norms, right? Zoom norms that we have, virtual meeting norms with these new characters that we put on and um, play with. So, I mean, I'm very keen to actually put one on right now and, and see what that actually does to our interaction. Uh, but I can't seem to find it. Like, this is so fascinating. <laughs> if you click on the, there should be like a green shield, a little green shield on the top left of your screen, Shash, on Zoom, mm -hmm. and then click the settings button. Huh. I'll put my COVID, my COVID mask for you. Keep <laughs> <guys> safe. 
I'm going to talk like this. You can't really understand what I'm saying. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, it, these things are great. I, I think they they do make it. Yeah, good. See, you got to wear a hat. Xavier, that's a good hat. Yeah, I'll, I'll put on the little hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't seem to find it. But for the next the next conversation, I will definitely find one of these things. <laughs> I mean, come, wrapping this or uh, uh, coming back and sort of zooming out into like what we've discussed so far. So, you know, we started off by entering your your childhood room. Michael, you were describing your house in Tennessee and the surroundings of the woods and you were describing how you were, you identified with the, the you know, the punk, punk rock movement and how that led you to um, creating music and we followed that by, you know, talking about by talking about collaborating as a musician, the fluidity of a musician versus other industries. And now we've, you know, come to this point where we're discussing the, I guess, the troubles or um, the the interesting challenges that, you know, work from home poses for innovation, for creativity, not only for business people, but I think for the world. And this may lead to a question of like a potential utopia, like a, an imaginary place where, you know, what would be the best situation or what would be the ideal situation? What would be the situation that would allow us to move forward, that would allow us to be in an optimal state um, for the long term? And we ask this to all of our guests and we, we preface this by saying you can be as optimistic or as pessimistic as you like. But one, one thing we wanted to ask is, what does your utopia look like? And please feel free to describe this utopia. What would this place look like? Um, and yeah. Also, I'd invite you not beyond the optimism and pessimism to become playful with it, if you'd like, because that's been a, a theme throughout this conversation and uh, something we can take back and, and apply in our lives to become more playful or being prompted to play more. So feel free to be as playful with, with your utopia. Well, clearly it's a pirate ship because of my, uh, my hat and eye patch. <laughs> you know, so, one, of the, one, of the, uh, one of the more interesting things I think that's revealed itself during the pandemic is that it's opened up creative opportunities for more people across, uh, I guess, their own personal networks or even opportunities like this where, you know, we didn't know each other until we started talking to each other today. And so I, I do think there's um, something instructive for, for recognizing that we probably have been limiting ourselves in who we connect with um, and what we believe the value of that is more than we should. You know, and I think the pandemic's taught us that uh, there are far more collaboration opportunities and more people are, are open to them than we realized. So in my utopia, I, I, I'm hoping for more collaboration. I've, I've, never, I've never been um, uh, a true individualist. You know, I, I, I'm, if I look at all the success I've had in my career, I've had it with somebody. I mean, um, Panos Panay, my, my co-author for this book, he and I did this together. Um, I don't, I actually turned down writing the book on my own. I didn't want to do that. 
I pitched, I pitched the agent to Panos and Panos said he didn't want to do it by himself either. So we ended up doing it together. <laughs> uh, and without Panos and me without, and he without me, we wouldn't have had a book. I, I think there's a lot more, a lot more to be done in the world, a lot more creativity to unleash in collaboration and in partnership. Um, and to get there, we just have to get out of our comfort zones and, and take the risk to be willing to ask people to, to play, right? I mean, I didn't have any business writing a book, neither did Pontus, we'd never done it. Um, but we figured it out together. Um, so in my utopia, that's what it is. I also hope we're not, I hope we're finding that we don't need to be as limited to the categories or roles we find ourselves in, that there's a lot more that we can be doing. Um, and to be just self-referential again, I mean, I, I wasn't an author until officially until April, 2021, you know, but I feel uh, <laughs> pretty lucky to be able to put that now in my description, my bio. So, I want more of that. I want more of those collaborative opportunities with people. Captain, oh, Captain, I, I completely agree with you. And going back to being pirates on the ship, there's a very interesting metaphor that we, we love to think about, which is a quote on Utopia by Eduardo Galeno, who says that Utopia is like the horizon. The closer we move towards it, the farther it moves away from us. And no matter how much we try getting towards utopia, we might never get there. So what's the point of it? The point is to keep on walking, or I would say to keep on playing, right? To keep on experimenting with it so, so that we can get, I mean, maybe closer to it or, or find a more interesting journey, right? Have a, have a more uh, fun experience while we are on the ship of life. So I, I very much resonate with what you just said. And now you're a, a fierce lion, a fierce tight lion. Yeah. I am a tiger. I'm a terrifying cat. <laughs> <laughs> but with that in mind, I think that brings us to the, the end of the conversation, Michael. Um, I'd like to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I'm very grateful. We're both very grateful to have this conversation with you. It was actually very interesting because we connected with a previous podcast guest that works at um, Schauschwitz University and she recommended this book to you and uh, you know like to, and then, yeah, to us to us sorry and then and then <laughs> funny enough we ended up connecting with you and having this opportunity to discuss so I'm very very grateful I'm sure Schauschwitz is as well and I'd like to say thank you so much for all the insights with regards to music with regards to creativity and everything else in between and I'd thank also you. just like to to add that uh, this is the first time that someone was so responsive to our invitations and prompts to play. So I really do um, <laughs> from the bottom of my heart, feel the excitement and the passion and the energy uh, seeing you play and seeing you embody what you're speaking about, not just talking the talk, but walking it. So I, I really appreciate that. And from this conversation, I've been very inspired by uh, the work you do and the space that you described, IDEO. And since I'm not too far away, I hope to, to come check it out to see what that liminal space is like. And then hopefully maybe one day even apply to being there because that sounds, that's to me sounds like my utopia. That sounds like the ideal place to not just work, but to play at, to be in, right. And connect with people that, that to me sounds fantastic. So yeah, thank you so much for connecting with us and being so 
uh, playful with us and sharing all the fantastic insights. Thank you. It's a great conversation. And I, I love the, uh, the courage to try something new. You know, like, like Justin Timberlake said in the book, dare to suck. I mean, mm-hmm. playing can go, it can, the outcome can be really horrible. You know, we know that. Um, I don't know what this is going to be like to listen to, but I enjoyed the time with you. So um, that's value in of itself, I think. And um, I appreciate what you all are doing. Thank you. Thank you so yeah, much. And we hope to iterate, right? Like you said, right? This is sort of our demo here. And we hope to continue the artistic process you described and, uh, and learn from it and then keep on changing it and tinkering with it in ways so that hopefully one day we can have virtual interactions and conversations where we can learn a lot of new things, but at the same time, feel alive, feel playful, feel like we're in this enchanted space mm-hmm. and we're able to connect with beings in new ways. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that you participated and uh, we hope to have you on for more podcasts. We, we hope to build a community. So if perhaps we could have an experimental community session where we, we engage in dialogue and, and artistic work and, uh, yeah, come together in new ways. So uh, we'd love to continue the conversation moving forward. Mm. Yes, Great. absolutely. And just very lastly, Michael, this is just an opportunity. If you'd like to share any last thoughts or if you'd like to 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 tell us, any of our audience about your book, I'm very briefly. Or plug something in, some, some yeah. kind of a plug that you want to give out to the world. Uh, well, the, the book is called Two Beats Ahead. And you can read about it at twobeatsahead.com. If you're curious, and we interview musicians, producers, uh, business leaders about uh, their creative mindsets through the lens of music. Fantastic. Do you have a playful, playful plug by any chance beyond your book? A playful plug? Um, you know, I don't know. I could, I could ask the world to do all kinds of things for, on my behalf. <laughs> 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 but I, I won't i won't throw anything in today i do think you should use more camera filters though mm. like, i think that might be, be my one request fantastic for, for you the next yep. meeting you're in turn on your camera filters that would actually make me very happy yes and i think all the folks whether that's college students who usually listen to our podcast whenever there's this virtual meeting to definitely put on something virtually so that it prompts others to play in that environment and that that sort of very tense uh, environment can be dissipated and we can feel like wow this is awesome i, I really want to be here so i will definitely start doing that for sure mm. thank you for that or just dress in. up like a pirate just just yep. don't use the filter just, <laughs> just gonna you know, dress up. <laughs> yeah that is so fascinating I, I love that definitely Thank you so much, Michael, for for your ins- the inspiration that you've brought to us today, and we hope to continue this forward in the future. Thank you.